Hi everyone, and welcome back to Poverty Unpacked. This is the June version of Poverty Unpacked Chats, and I'm Katie Rulin, the host of this podcast. Every second month, I want to share with you things I've read, things I've seen or heard about in relation to poverty that I think are worthwhile sharing. And in this version of the chat, I'd like to talk about three different things. And the first one is a podcast I recently listened to, uh, which is called The Uncertain Hour. It's a podcast that talks about social and economic issues in the US. In this season, it's focused on the welfare to work policy. I really was struck by this podcast. I've listened to three episodes now, and it's really insightful exploration and interrogation of the welfare to work policy, hearing from those who are taking part in it, its beneficiaries, but also the companies who implement the policy on behalf of governments, and to get an insight not only in how it affects people in their day-to-day lives that are having to abide by work requirements, for example, as well as the massive industry that is behind it. And it really calls into question who benefits from this policy in a way that I haven't quite seen articulated before, which is, I guess, why I was so drawn to it. So in the US, there was a massive change in the welfare system in 1996. Bill Clinton signed into law a new welfare uh, bill, which a lot of people have called the end to welfare as it was working until then. There was a lot of claims that people were on benefits forever, receiving welfare without doing anything for it, and what was needed to break the cycle of poverty, to break the cycle of welfare dependency, was notably a system that really made work the core. And so people were now asked to do work or do training or take part in sessions that would help them get into work as part of the receipt of welfare. And so that gave rise to the welfare to work policy as it's implemented now. And and in the uncertain hour, it interviews beneficiaries, it interviews these intermediaries. And we hear its host, Chrissy Clark, talk to people and add her own commentary on some of the main points that, that the podcast draws out. From the beneficiary side, it's absolutely clear that, that the many requirements that are placed on welfare receipts are putting people in really tough conditions. In one episode, she speaks to a woman who is part of the welfare to work policy and so has a requirement to go to work, to go to training sessions, etc. But at the same time, she's also battling to get study for her son back. To do that, she has to attend court hearings. There's other requirements she has to meet. And those are in conflict with each other. And while the welfare to work policy allows for some flexibility in the requirements, turns out really difficult to get that flexibility. And so it's really making her her life a lot harder uh, rather than easier or rather than better able to, to break the cycle of poverty. So that's one element of it. But the other element for beneficiaries is that it doesn't really offer that pathway out of poverty, which it's supposed to do. People maybe thinking about what jobs they would like to do. They get training in how to write their CV or resume. But in the end, they are pushed into low-wage, low-skilled jobs that are often temporary. And people get drawn into a cycle of precarity rather than a pathway 
out of poverty, if you will. So a lot of the people that Chrissy speaks to talk about how they actually started out with a bit of excitement, thinking that this program could help them into a career, into good work. But actually, they cycle in and out of uh, of jobs that aren't really in their area of interest or that are so low skilled that it doesn't help them build a career. The other element that really is brought out in this podcast is about the massive industry in terms of the intermediaries that implement the policy for governments and the companies that they serve in finding low wage, low skilled workers to fill the jobs that are very, actually very unattractive. So the intermediaries through the welfare to work policy create this pool of low wage, low skilled workers that are very attractive to companies, not least because the incentives are such that there is no real push from government to intermediaries. So those companies that have to find job jobs for welfare to work uh, beneficiaries to find permanent positions or jobs that have a long-term vision. I believe the requirement is as little as three weeks. People have to be in a job for three weeks, maybe a month before the intermediary, that company gets a payment from government um, for notably a success story. If that person loses their job one day later, that's no longer their problem. In fact, they might go back into that whole cycle again. And when there's a new job found and they stay in it for, for a few weeks or the required amount of time, the company, the intermediary company gets that money again. At some point in the podcast, they talk about who actually receives more money through the policy. Is it the individual who is needing support or is it the company that's finding them the jobs and in fact it's um it's it's almost equal if not more for the company and therefore i find this podcast really insightful because it's a, it's a side of the the policy we don't often hear about and it really brings home to me that there's bigger questions bigger issues with welfare to work policies particularly because these private intermediaries have come into play Please do listen to the podcast. I think it's really good and should spark a conversation about such policies and the role of private companies that act on behalf of government to implement them. The second thing I wanted to talk about is memoirs. There are three memoirs I read recently. They're all set in the UK and they're from three female authors that have grown up in poverty and the takeaway across these three memoirs is that there are many issues that cut across that are similar in their experiences of poverty, the daily grind of poverty, the insecurity of living on a low income, not knowing where they're going to live next, not knowing when they're going to have food next, etc. But another thing that really struck me across these three memoirs is how context matters and how Individual experiences of poverty in different settings bring across different issues. So it's certainly not the case that if you've heard about one experience of poverty or living on a low income, that this is reflective of of many other people's situations. That sounds obvious, but we do tend to hear a lot of platitudes about 
what it means to live in poverty or grow up in poverty. And I wanted to highlight some of the different issues I picked up from these three memoirs to show that there are specificities that are really important to keep in mind. The first memoir is Lowborn, Growing Up, Getting Away and Returning to Britain's Poorest Towns by Kerry Hudson. It was published a few years ago in 2019. It starts off in Scotland, um, where, where Kerry is born, but then it moves around the country. So this is a memoir that's set in quite a chaotic living situation, a family situation, also a situation of domestic violence. And Carrie moves around the country with her mother as her mother tries to find a better life. And it results in Carrie living in different temporary accommodation across the country, across the UK. And that brings with it lots of insecurity, lots of unknowns about where they're going to be, what their home is going to look like, who her friends are going to be. And also, where's the food going to come from? This is all set in a, in a situation of, of very limited means of income. So what this book does for me is really give an insight into the lived experiences of temporary accommodation. So housing for people on a low income, and sometimes that's bed and breakfast, sometimes that's hostels, and sometimes that's social housing. Carrie speaks quite candidly about a hierarchy of, of temporary homeless accommodation and she does that through describing the different places that she lives in. So I want to read one excerpt to you from when she had just moved to Canterbury and they were living in a bed and breakfast that was run by Mrs Stone and we hear what Carrie thinks about Mrs Stone. Mrs. Stone laughed a lot, her head tilted and always looked nice in her pastel suits, like a woman off TV. Even when she wore jeans, she looked dressed up with a lot of jewellery and the perfume that the room smelled of long after she'd left. After the dreariness of Aberdeen, that tall grand house on a proper street in Canterbury was like going to live in a TV programme too. I remember mum sitting on the bottom of the bunk bed that took up half the room looking up at Mrs. Stone while she ran us through the rules and I inspected the breakfast tray with its cling film wrapped pieces of bread and irresistible tiny boxes of cereals. We were forbidden to be in the house from 10am to 5.30pm and there was a top up fee that would need to be paid from our social money in addition to our housing benefits. Mrs. Stone would personally deliver the weekly breakfast tray we would also need to pay for. I'm fairly sure it was at this point that my mum started to see Mrs. Stone was trying to fuck us over. I could hear the familiar growl starting in my mum's voice, the tightening of her mouth that meant she was about to blow. Even thinking about it, I have that panicked feeling in my belly. I understood nothing except that I wanted to stay in that warm room to sleep in bunk beds with my mum and eat some of that dolly-sized cereal. I didn't want to go back to the phone box or another coach or another cafe where we couldn't afford anything but a drink. I wanted to stay in this story, this miniature room, belonging to this miniature woman with her miniature breakfast foods. I didn't understand that Mrs. Stone with her gold rings and hair like Alexis from Dynasty was shafting us. I didn't understand that the crappy little breakfast tray she appeared to take so much pride in would cost us double, maybe triple what it would cost her, and would, with the added extra rent, gorge out everything but the most basic things, and often those two, from our benefits, already calculated to be the littlest amount we could subsist on. 
I didn't understand how empty and boring those long days would feel when we were forced to be away from that little room or how hungry you could get when your mum didn't have enough to buy snacks because you'd already paid two pounds for a slice of clean film bread, a pat of rancid butter and a tiny box of cereal you'd eaten too quickly that morning. I didn't know how it would hurt mum to hear me complain about those cold, tedious days or how starving I was or thirsty or to hear my pleading to go back and get a toy or watch the TV. But I'd learn quickly enough and stop. A really powerful excerpt from the book Lowborn that really vividly describes what it's like to depend on others for, for your housing and how people are pushed about unfairly. But there's very little that one can do. The second memoir I read was by Kit de Waal, called Without Warning and Only Sometimes, Scenes from an Unpredictable Childhood. And this is set in the 1960s in Birmingham. And the specific situation here is around Kit growing up in a mixed race family with her mother being Irish and her father being Caribbean growing up in poverty on low income also in an unstable family situation although her parents for most of the time are together the relationship isn't great and there's a lot of fear of her father as well and an uneasy relationship but it's also very much about growing up in a situation being mixed race which is very unusual at the time and having parents of, of two uh, groups that are very much discriminated against Irish and people from the Caribbean. And so there's that element that is really a specific issue that intersects with living in poverty. I would also like to read you an excerpt from this book. And this is when it and her siblings are going to be bridesmaids for a wedding, but there's no money for shoes that go with the with the dresses. Their grandmother was going to take care of the shoes, but their grandmother also has issues with the fact that their father is from the Caribbean. So there's um, a very tense relationship between the grandmother and their father, and the grandmother really not wanting to acknowledge that they are not white children. Months go by. The absence of the shoes becomes an urgent talking point. We've been measured and fitted for our pink satin dresses that hang upstairs on the cellophane. Our little pink muffs dangle from silky pink cords and our glittering tiaras are stacked together on mum's dressing table. No shoes. A few weeks before the wedding, Nan arrives, breathless, in the kitchen. I'm as good as my word, Sheila. Didn't I tell you I'd find something for the girls? Mum makes Nan a cup of tea in a proper cup and sends Dean sprinting to the shop for biscuits. Thanks, Mum, she says with her hands splayed over her heart. We gather round as Nan opens her shopping bag. There are no shoe boxes, just plastic bags wrapped around something inside. She passes each bundle carefully to Mum, who sits down opposite her mother. I went to the rag market, Nan continues, tapping the table between them. If you can't find a bargain in that place, there's none to be had. I walked up and down, up and down, until I found them. Mum unwraps each package in turn and places the contents on the table in front of her. These are not shoes. These are pumps, gym shoes. They're second hand. They're dirty and grey and scuffed and laceless and worn down at the back and ugly. Mum stares and stares and we look at her face sagging under the weight of confirmation. Nan looks from the shoes to mum's face and back to the shoes. She picks them up and turns them over one by one. 
They'll do, they'll do. Sure, aren't the dresses long enough to cover them? Nobody will see them, Sheila. What are you worrying about? They're grand, aren't they? You can get some of the white stuff that you paint on. You can bleach out any stains and they'll be good as new. The next day, Mum shouts is all awake and tells us to get dressed. Excited voice, strong and certain. Hurry up, we're going into town, shopping, she says, pulling the belt on her brown coat. All of you downstairs, hurry up. We get off the number 91 bus and walk straight into Startright. I want four pairs of white shoes, she says confidently, her hand grasping the handle of her shopping bag. It's for a wedding. They're going to be bridesmaids. The other customers turn and look, and Mum, for a change, meets their eye and nods. My brother, she says to no one, to everyone. Youngest brother, and these are my children. We are measured and we are waited on. My shoes are new, they are glittery and princess white with a pretty bow at the front. Tracy's are the same, and because Kim is older, hers are a bit different, with a little heel. Karen's are pretty and dainty with glitter and a single pearl button. They cannot be passed from one girl to the next. They cannot be worn for school. They will be no good in the rain, in the park, in the garden. We walk proudly out of the shoe shop, each of us swinging our own bag. Only when we get home and mum tells dad how much it all cost do we realise the depth of the insult that Nan had dealt him. Good, he says. Go tell Maggie the price. Really nice piece there. It was actually no money to buy these shoes, but it was really important for Kit's mother and also her father to establish their worth. I can highly recommend this memoir. The third memoir that I recently read is a new one. It's by Natasha Carthew. It's called Undercurrent, a Cornish memoir of poverty, nature and resilience. And as the title says, it's set in Cornwall and particularly in rural Cornwall. So that's the particular issue that I take away from this book. It's about rural poverty. Rural poverty comes with issues of its own, lack of infrastructure, lack of services. And in Cornwall and the seaside town that Natasha grew up in, especially how that's contrasted with well-to-do tourists that come to this town. Natasha writes very powerfully and, and also vividly about what it was like to grow up in poverty. And in contrast, for example, to Carrie's book, it wasn't a situation of moving around. It was very much a situation of being stuck somewhere and being stuck in a place where there is little prospect. And what that does to her, to other young people around her, to their mental health and to their actual opportunities to break the cycle of poverty. This excerpt I'm going to read you now very much speaks to this. The summer before secondary school was a summer of no return for many reasons. But more than anything, it was a moment in my young life when I suddenly felt the shift in me that slowly slipped towards true temperament. My family and the community around us always acted in a certain way. They were predictable, their dimensions and mechanisms always moving in the same circular motion. I knew just by walking past an open door what was being said and what was coming next, could sense the air was hostile or friendly or fun just by feeling the currents. Everything was expectable, easy and flat, calm, tiresome. At the age of 11, I was bored, really, really bored. 
houses in Cornwall, especially the ones remembered from childhood, are feather-stuffed, full of hot, heady days and warm, sleepless nights, like a giant duvet had fallen from the heavens and settled between the river and our two oceans. The summer that lodged itself between childhood and that something other age was no different. I've no doubt that to some extent it was the same for the tourists and the rich village kids who were of similar age to me. But when you grow up in poverty, everything is just that little bit harder and the tedium that exists day to day is a vacuum of things you wished you could afford to do, but no, you can't because of money. No trips to the cinema in St. Austell or roller disco in Plymouth. No video games, except those at the arcade in Seaton, the ones that cost money. Money we didn't have unless we got lucky when we stuck our hands among the cobwebs beneath the machines. I can recommend all these three books and more. There's many more memoirs from the UK and, of course, from many other places in the world. Read them. Read them to get an understanding of what it is to to grow up in these tough conditions and how people's situations are different. Right, and the third thing I wanted to mention is from a different context altogether in Bangladesh. It relates to a recent visit of the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Olivier Schutter, to the country where he looked at the poverty situation and writes an independent report on what is going well, but especially also what governments should really consider to do differently. These visits are on invitation by governments, and they are usually very high profile, and they can generate a lot of attention within country and internationally. So, for example, a few years ago, the former rapporteur, Philip Alston, came to the UK and provided a blistering report of the UK's um, approach to tackling poverty and especially welfare, and that gained a lot of media attention, pushback as well. But it shows how much discussion it can generate. So they can be quite impactful, these visits. In May, the rapporteur went to Bangladesh. He provided an end of mission statement that was really quite something, I think. He made a few points that I think only he could make in his position as an independent but UN-backed rapporteur. In his end of mission statement with respect to poverty, he highlighted a few issues that we are also seeing in our own research on Bangladesh, which is around urban poverty that has increased following COVID and the increased level of precarity. So certain jobs like domestic work no longer being um, available like it was before, but also lack of support in a time of rising prices and high inflation that makes life everywhere in the country, but especially in urban areas, much more volatile. But certain specific issues that he picked up on that I think are quite contentious and that others have problems speaking about in the country is on the, on the one hand about the Digital Securities Act which is notably used for security purposes in the country, but creates quite a lot of issues with respect to civil society and journalists speaking their minds. And the UN Special Rapporteur took no prisoners in that respect and really criticised the use of that act and the way it's, it's being implemented, preventing people from 
criticizing things that are going on in the country, but especially for marginalized groups to to argue their case. It was one of the first points that the special rapporteur made in his end of mission statement. And that I think was really setting the tone for, for the rest of his observations. Because the second um, element of his end of mission statement that I believe was was really quite powerful is around garment workers and the wages that they are paid. The so-called ready-made garment industry, RMG, is responsible for a very large part of the country's exports. And so very lucrative business for, for the for the country and very important for the government to keep going. But the rapporteur criticized the government for the way in which it keeps wages low. So it uh, keeps the sector attractive for um, international buyers. The, the rapporteur comments on how this stops the efforts to improve uh, living conditions for people and break the cycle of poverty and really calls upon government to prioritize people's livelihoods and living conditions over the economy and getting investment into into the country. Again, a point I think is difficult for many other people to make and a really important one that he flagged in his end of mission statement. If you're interested in the work of the special rapporteur, we also did an episode with him where he speaks really eloquently about the issues facing people living in poverty and some of the big things that we should be thinking about. These are the points that I wanted to bring this time. Of course, there's much more that we could say and talk about. If there's anything that you think I need to cover next time, please let me know. Comment on Twitter or via Instagram or send a direct email. I hope you'll join us again for the chat next time in August and of course for our regular episodes. Thank you for listening.